is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Cremation of Sam McGee is one of the most famous poems by Robert W. Service. It was published in 1907 in Songs of a Sourdough. A sourdough, in this sense, is a resident of the Yukon. It's about the cremation of a prospector who freezes to death, told by the man who cremates him. Here now is the cremation of Sam McGee, told by the great Johnny Cash. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail, and you talk of your cold well, through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close and the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see, it wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and Cap says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, You'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, it was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate my last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low, and the trail was bad. And I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing. 
and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake LeBarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round, and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. And what a piece of storytelling, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We get out of the way, we find some really great material, and we share it with you. And by the way, as Johnny Cash was telling that story, I couldn't get the thought of the Lonesome Dove out of my head and that great burial scene where, of course, Woodrow has to bury Gus. He has to take him all the way back all the way back across the country by wagon because he made a promise to his buddy. By the way, if you remember the line, he says, I'll, I guess this will teach me to be more careful about what I promise in the future. But a promise then was a promise, and hopefully you know people in your life now today where a promise is a promise. The cremation of Sam McGee, what storytelling, and that's the great Johnny Cash. If you've got an old story like this from American literature, from the American canon, Send us your suggestions. We'll put them up on the air and send them right back at you. American literature at its finest. American performance art at its finest. And American storytelling at its finest here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and sometimes some things that are a bit uncomfortable. Homelessness is a social crisis in America that's mostly ignored. And we see the signs of it everywhere, all of us, and it it breaks our hearts. We just don't know what to do about it. We're a good and decent people. But sometimes you'll see someone on the street and think, boy, if I give them money, am I helping? But it hits you and it strikes your conscience. And we, we like to talk about everything here on this show. And Mark Horvath is a man who has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets, armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their lives. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories, the invisible people in this country, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark's hearing Lynette's story. Lynette is a homeless military vet living in her car in Inglewood, California. When she got out of the military, Lynette returned to Compton to reconnect with her family. She started to smoke spice to help deal with her PTSD. Spice is also called synthetic marijuana because the chemicals are similar to the ones found in the marijuana plant. Lynette is full of life yet because of PTSD and a drug habit. She's vulnerable out on the streets. Here's Lynette. Lynette. You're a homeless veteran living in your car. Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Tell me about it. Well, it started um, July of last year. Um, I was in Compton. Um, That's my home of record, where both my my parents grew up and my grandparents are from. Um, My grandfather is Maxie Filer, and Blundell Filer is my grandmother. And I get a lot of my... um, background a lot of my upbringing from my grandparents and so they passed away Um, my grandmother passed away last year in February and my grandfather in 2011 and after they passed away I I wanted to come back to Compton just to kind of get more of my roots after getting out of the military well I found that some of my beliefs and my understandings um, clashed with Compton and my family Um, I have PTSD from going to war twice and the core of me likes structure, it likes discipline, it likes to have evidence, it likes to have understanding about things. And I realize not everybody thinks that way. So when I moved back home with my family in Compton, we got into fights and disagreements about some of my beliefs. One belief of mine is that the household should be clean. There should not be filth, everything has a place. Um, You can make a mess, but you have to clean up that mess. Um, Another belief is that you can control the environment, you can control the energy. Um, The gang activity that was happening at my grandparents' house disturbed me. My grandparents' house was never tagged with with graffiti or anything like that. And when I came back to Compton last year, I saw that. So one of the disputes between me and my family was about me painting my grandparents' wall white. I have a judge. Um, My uncle, that's a judge, and he owned the house at the time, and he said, well, why did you paint the wall white? And I said, why not? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it clean? I said, it had graffiti on there. He said, well, you don't understand because you've been away from Compton. That now will attract the gang members to come tag the house again. And I just didn't understand that. 
And we couldn't see eye to eye about that. So I basically kept painting the wall white till they stopped tagging it. That was a, a problem between me and my family. They felt I was attracting gang energy. I felt I was blocking gang yeah, energy yeah. and supporting my grandparents in a way of, you know, the old fashioned, this is your property. No one comes on your property and just yeah. degrades it. So that was one disagreement with me and my family when I was living there. The other was, my brain went dark after seeing young people die. Um, I really truly believed that Marines couldn't die. From the training that I was with as a hospital corpsman, we train with Marines and if we pass their training, we walk, talk, eat, live Marine Corps. When you do that, you believe in everything they teach you and everything you train with. And you don't believe that Marines can die. You think it's impossible. So when you go to war and you see that happen, it does something to your soul. It does something to your soul. It's not like I hadn't seen death. I had seen death in older generations, people getting sick and passing away. Um, working in the hospital, I saw death. But when I saw Marines die, it did something dark to my brain, something bad to my soul. So, so how long have you been living in your car? So when I told my family about smoking, that helped with my people. Told my family about smoking, that helped with my PTSD, um, spice. Yeah. Except living at the household. Yeah. Well, that spice is bad stuff. It, it's, it's horrible. Once I found out what it was yeah. and all the reactions it could cause, it's yeah. horrible. So you were smoking spice and that's how you ended up homeless. That's how it happened. My, oh my family, gosh. I went to the hospital one night. I had gastritis because I was internalizing a lot of my stress. Right. I was seeing a psychologist. Psychologist said, hey, you need a better environment. Right. Said, it's your environment said look the spice is not good he said but the fact of you balancing your priorities and having structure and you're coming in you're talking to me about your stressors that's what's helping you you know go forward he said get out of that household that household is yeah. it's just not good and your only option was the car only option was a car after that. So what I did was I said, well, I have my disability. I was happy. I have my disability. I can go. I can look for apartments. I can try to find some type of temporary program. I applied for U.S. Vets. Um, they said I wasn't eligible for the care that they could, the services that they offered. I wasn't eligible. I, I made too much money with my disability. So I said, okay, um, let's try apartments. So I searched for some apartments because, mind you, I have two kids. And it was summertime when they had gotten through the last year of Compton and it was summertime. Yeah. And um, I'm using my disability, my social security, and I'm, I'm given all the documents that you need to get, you know, uh, apartment. I'm waiting on the phone call, that takes time. Yeah. I get the phone call back. Uh, we didn't approve you for the apartment. Sorry, you'll get something in the mail. Well, how will I get something in the mail if I'm homeless? So it was like, okay, discouraging because First off, that's not my norm. I'm not used to looking for housing. For 14 years, Navy, Marine Corps always supplied housing. So this is a new process to me, but I understand my, my, my psychologist and my, my, my psychologist told me, apply again, it just takes a long, well, in the long time. It's a long time. Well, in the meantime, I'm, time, I'm in Compton staying in the parks. I got shot up in my car. If I take you to the That's back of my why car. You have the That's the Spider-Man. I had to be creative and cover my car. Now let me tell you what because happened. Because you got shot out? I was in Long Beach. Oh I was trying God. to find apartments and learn Long Beach a little better because that's where I'm from. That's where right. I was born. Now my parents were raised in Compton, but I was born Long Beach Naval Base. Right. I stayed in a park and the police said, it's too late. You got to go 
Right. And you can't stay. I said, oh man, well Compton has a park that I can go to and I can stay, Gonzalez Park. Fire, uh, fireman house right there and then it's a big old park. I'm headed down Compton Boulevard, going to the park. When I get to Aran Aranby, I believe, is the yeah. street, um, there's a car wash to the right and there's a stoplight. Well, I see a vehicle going this way and traffic's supposed to be going this way. Yeah. So I said, oh, it's like 11 o'clock at night. I yeah. said, oh, this guy must be a drunk driver or something. I pull out of the way. I don't want him to come my way. Right, right. I pull over to the car wash. The individual pulled all the way around. I thought he was leaving. He pulled up right behind me, jumped out of the car, point blank started shooting at my car. Oh my gosh. I drove just like I was in Iraq. Went right back oh to my, my training. So what's it like living in your car and what's gonna? What's your future like? Well, I'm to the point now where I really would like to use my VA loan. That's my, my bigger plan. I've kind of right. given up on the other stuff because it's kind of, the system's kind of beat me. Yeah. I, I can't seem to, to win with those. So my biggest hope, I've talked with the police officers down here. I've tried to network a little bit to see real estate, um, realtors, people that know about the, you know, the houses. I understand you have to have your ducks in a row when you use the VA loan. So that's my hope. Um, my dream is I would love to win the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to ask that's you. That's my dream. Yeah. I have dreams yeah. still. Well, I still have dreams. If you had three wishes, what would they be? First, get my children back. I miss my children. Yeah. The way they were taken, it was terrible. Um, and they weren't taken by any authority. They were taken by family. So that's what hurts the most. It's like, who gave you the right? So my first wish would be to have my children back. If I could have them back, my heart would feel like it's back, you know, like it's normal. Um, of course, to have them, I have to have somewhere to be. I have to have shelter. So any human being <laughs> needs shelter. So my children, shelter, and then I would love to win the lottery. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And you've been listening to Mark Horvath interviewing a young lady named Lynette, served our country in the Marine Corps in Iraq, living out of a car. And this is the voice of some of our homeless. Not all of them, but enough of them. And all of them have a story. All of them have family. And what great work Mark Horvath is doing. Invisible People is the project. Go to YouTube to look and watch or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Lynette's story Mark Horvath's story, the homeless story in America, here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between and we also want to hear from you our favorite stories have been stories from our listeners you are the hour in Our American Stories send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org that's OurAmericanNetwork.org and this next segment well it's one of our favorites because it combines two things we love well, the story and music. And this is the story of a song, and we've done a whole bunch. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and go up to our topics bar, and you can click that section, and you'll hear Ray Manzarek talking about Riders on the Storm and Light My Fire by the Doors. There Goes My Life, the Kenny Chesney hit, 
A terrific story behind that song and the songwriter's version of the Chesney hit, Kenny didn't write the song, is just beautiful. Jesus Take the Wheel, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, and even the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, a heck of a story about a modern studio masterpiece. And now let's hear from Greg Hengler, hear from Greg Hengler who brings us another great story of a song. Toledo, Ohio-based Sanctus Reels lead guitarist Chris Roman shared the story behind Lead Me, our next installment of our Story of a Song series. Our lead singer, Matt Hammett, had most of the song written. It was written after Matt and his wife had a pretty gut-wrenching conversation where she told him that she needed him to be a better spiritual leader to her and the family. Matt said that he found it humbling that his wife would have the courage to say something like that out of love. Secondly, he realized that he had to do something about it. That's where the song came from. The idea is actually at least a year and a half old. We had a rough idea of the song because he had a demo, but it got put in a pile. The president of our record label somehow found the song before we completely finished the record and said, Something's going on with that song. I think it could really be turned into something special if you guys finished it. Until he said that, we hadn't even entertained the thought of putting the song on the record. When we went in the studio to finish the song with this writer from Nashville, the story came together perfectly. Here's Matt and his wife Sarah sharing with us the story of their song, Lead Me. Hey, I'm Matt from Sanctus Real, and this is the story behind the song, Lead Me. Lead Me is a song that I wrote for my wife and my kids. My wife and I have been married for nine years, been best friends for almost 11 now. We have two beautiful little girls, and we actually have our third uh, baby, a little boy on the way who's due in September. God's blessed us with a a great marriage, but we're also very open about um, some of the conflict some of the struggle that we've had in our marriage. I love my husband, we have a great relationship, but it's been hard at times, and the hard part has been resolving conflict. A couple years ago, it just got to a a point where it felt like the wall between us was just growing so big. And I remember I'd come home off the road, and I'd just be totally worn out. I needed Matthew to come home and be strong for us, and just be the rock and the leader that we all needed in our home. Resolving conflict peacefully and quickly has been our main struggle. My kids were being affected by it. I realized in those moments, we've gotta, we've gotta step it up and figure this out for real and not just say we're gonna figure it out and do nothing about it. We need to figure it out and fix it. It was so painful to feel so distant from the person that you want to be so close to in this life, the person who you love the most. We got to a place where we had to make a decision. Either we work on the marriage or, you know, some people might take the path of divorce, which was not an option for us. We decided that we were going to fight for our marriage. I hadn't been a great spiritual leader to my family. I felt at times I was weak and I needed him to be the strength in our home. I hadn't really listened to her heart the way that I should have. It was time for me to change. I went before the Lord and I just said, God, you know what, if I'm going to lead my family, then I need you to lead me. And wrote the guts of the song, Lead Me, as the cry of a wife to be loved by her husband, the cry of kids to be loved by their dad, and then the prayer of a daddy and a husband to be loved by God 
and the most important and most difficult task of building my home on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. for other men as well is every time I hear it every time I sing it I have to ask myself 
what kind of man am I? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, what kind of man am I today? Have I invested in my family emotionally and spiritually the way that God's called me to reach out to them and to lead them? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And and the lyrics here, I know we call this our home, but I still feel alone. And what a truthful line. Any married couple knows that loneliness. It happens in, in, in couples. And how do you bring that together? And how does it not end in divorce? We bring a lot of classic songs here uh, to this show. And every once in a while, we bring a new one because we think it's a good one. Sanctus Reels, Lead Me. The writer, Matt Hammett. But my goodness, this is a co-creation, Matt and his bride. It's about them both. Their story, the story of a song here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, although you may not know what auto-tuning is, there's no doubt that you've heard it. In fact, you just did, with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow. Auto-tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off-pitch. Is this new music technology a good or a bad thing? And is it really new? Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Autotune has become the Botox of pop music. But like the commonly used neurotoxin, could autotuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look. Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the Sonovox. Harry Babbitt, using special Sonovox units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! Here's music writer Dave Tompkins. Like we always have this attraction from, from an early age at altering our voices. I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party. And, and here's a way to um, explore different characters. And what's more human than wanting to be something else? Here's musician Ben Harper. More bounce to the ounce. I mean, when that dropped, driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Marvin Gaye or Roger Troutman? Can't miss. Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, hook it up to a, an electrical charge, and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice, through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat, was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. After an hour of recording with that thing, it hurt. So now they have what's called auto-tune, and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it, and is equally as cool. The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune debate. 
Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father. Uh, hey, Dad. I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, wait Lord sounds like a girl. Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it? I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts. Give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's music is actually really good. Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah, yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer, I can actually quantize sparkling, everything. Feeling good, feeling back good. Back up instruments. Thoughts, and then yeah, finally, yeah, I use the yeah, auto-tune. Yeah. Sparkling thoughts, feeling good on a Wednesday. Giving me the hope, giving, giving me the hope to go on. What I need is a little bit of shelter. Stan? Here's Hall of Fame singer-songwriter and record producer, Linda Perry. Would you auto-tune Patti Smith? No. Carol King? No. Janis Joplin? Oh, my God. She, if they put auto-tune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that belief. And you know that's where that came from. That sound came from, and I love Cher but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went, and they were like, what is that? That's cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang. What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip hop artists, they discover they actually really like the sound of auto-tune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural one of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West. I'm not loving you way I wanted to. Here's musician Bonnie Ray. There's something great about not fixing stuff. You know, I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it and I'll I'll, I'll tune it back up and it just loses a lot of what the edge to it. Here again is Ben Harper. Now that auto-tune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means. It's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales. Here again is Linda Perry. There's not a lot of Christina's. That woman can sing. And she can change her voice and do so many wonderful things with it. Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble, when she tries to perfect the vocal. Troubled waters there, but when Christina just sings, As soon as she said, don't look at me, I heard it. The vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that, oh, she really doesn't think she's all that. Every day is so wonderful and suddenly. It's letting go of ego and being open to failing. 
beautiful thing about that version is when Christina sang it it was just it it was emotional that was the take that I knew right that that was the master take I added the drums and everything after the fact and Christina kept on coming to me I gotta re-sing that you know when can I re-sing that I'm like re-sing it are you crazy this is Magical, like people would die for this emotion. So she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not going to re-sing it. It's like seven months of this. Like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up, and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, she's, I mean, we're like maybe a minute into the song, if even that. I just stopped, and I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already you're over singing, you're over perfecting, and you're ruining the song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean? God, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? I don't understand this form of perfection. And then I finally realized there is no perfection. It's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful. It's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're going to get everything right because that's what the true beauty of life is. It's about not really getting it right. It's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now. Certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees, soul isn't, soulfulness isn't. There's such a huge, great soulful place for technology and music. There is, but there is a place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle. Every generation of people who listen and write and, and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are almost 100 years later, and if you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music and all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find the things that stand out to us as being unique. The ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and, and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart. We don't really judge a vocal on an intellectual level. What we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer-songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. 
but we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic. For our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler. Great job, as always, Greg. And, well, you haven't heard that one before because I hadn't. Auto-tune versus imperfection. The story of music, in a way, and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our Business to History, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And up next is the story of Mike and Deborah Bailey. After losing their daughter to an overdose, the Baileys did what some would consider to be the unthinkable, by forgiving the dealer who sold the drugs to their daughter. Ashlyn was really fun, little tiny thing, always smiling. Full of energy. She's one of those just magnetic people. She was at church all the time, so she was very familiar. So she was six years old when she mm. became a Christian. She just was like, Mom, I want, I want to do this. She talked to the children's minister as well as the pastor, and they were like, yes, she totally gets it and totally understands. From a little bitty age, she wanted to be a cheerleader. She was the one that they would just see how high they could throw her, you know? (laughs) And she loved it. When she started in kindergarten, she came home upset because some of the other girls wouldn't let her be in the club because she wasn't big enough, and it really crushed her. When people would tease her about it, she would just kind of laugh with it. They didn't really think it bothered her. She would forgive and just kind of move on. I think it's something that started at an early age, built that toughness up. I think she kind of went over and above to prove to everybody that she was important. So I really think she started experimenting with drugs just to prove that she was, you know, she was cool like the rest of the gang, you know. So Ashlyn's addiction started kind of in ninth grade as her just sampling weed just to try to fit in. And that kind of grew into, you know, a stronger addiction over time and stronger pills. Her senior year, it was really taking a pretty hard slide, her attitude around us, and we had been trying to parent her through it. She ended up deciding to go to rehab. Came back from that, a very strong Christian, but she went right back into the same environment that she was in. She went right back into the same environment that she was in before she went out there. And within two or three days, she was already back to smoking weed again. Two or three years, it was just a downhill spiral. Her drugs kept getting stronger and harder. She got on the, you know, a pretty hard opiate addiction um, that led to heroin. Ashlyn 
went to purchase heroin ended up purchasing heroin that was mainly fentanyl. They told us that they had found her dead of an overdose um, in, a, in an abandoned house downtown Birmingham. It was leading up to the sentencing hearing for the drug dealer. I don't know that I felt anything for or against him. We don't ever know if she would have been clean. You know, that chance was taken away from her. I'm dealing with anger. At times, you know, it's like, man, he needs to get what he got coming to him. I mean, that's the earthly side as a dad because, you know, what I love so much got taken from me. And about that time, our son came to us and said, can I go see him? Because I want to go talk to him and I want to offer him forgiveness. And I was like, well. And I knew that, that I needed to go and talk to him or, or write him a letter or something uh, just to let him know that I forgive him. I get freedom from it, but he also knows that I don't have any uh, anger or hatred towards him. So I knew that I had to because Jesus forgave me and I'm called to forgive others. If he's got it, that's just... That's just confirmation for me that we're doing the right thing by doing it because all three of us are being convicted of the same thing. So we went ahead and we wrote him a, a letter of forgiveness. As a family, we write this letter to you, hopefully through the eyes of Christ, not to condemn you, but to allow your conviction to change your heart and your life. You need to know that we do not hold any ill feelings toward you as a person created by God. We extend forgiveness to you for the wrongs against our family in the same way that Christ has forgiven our wrongs. I really, I think it, I think it kind of hit home, I hope anyway. Forgiveness is not righting a wrong. It is not reconciling a wrong, fixing it. But what forgiveness is, is what What's happened can keep me in bondage, and I'm not gonna allow that, what you did, to have a stronghold over me, so I'm releasing this to God. Our goal also is God loves Roderick, the guy that killed him, as much as he loves anybody. So, I mean, he's got a story. God's got a plan for him, just like he's got for me. You know, I don't wanna be the thing that keeps him from that, number one. But I want to be the one that helps, or we do, that leads him maybe closer to God. As many things as Ashlyn may have gotten wrong, the one thing she did get right was forgiveness. And all of us are going to have some struggles. We're all going to have some failures. We're all going to have some people that hurt us. Forgiveness like changes it all. And I think that's one thing that she really did get right. And if I could copy her on that, you know, I think her, I, I would be in a lot better place than, than I would have been without it. And what a story and the power of forgiveness. Christian or not, forgiveness, well, sometimes that's all you have. And if you don't forgive, well, you are in bondage and that hate will consume you. What a story indeed. That's Mike and Deborah Bailey. Their daughter, Ashlyn, lost to fentanyl and to opioids. And my goodness, we've been doing any number of stories about families losing children to drug overdoses. And it's a scourge in the country. 70, almost 70,000 people last year 
died of drug overdoses. That's more than the entire Vietnam War. And fentanyl has been the chief problem over the last few years. Fentanyl knows no class. It just comes in. It's a killer. And what a forgiveness story here, folks. The son teaching the adults the power of forgiveness. That letter, well, what better thing can you do to let go of that hate? My goodness, what a thing to read if you're the person who sold those drugs. What a second chance you're about to have if you'll just allow yourself to. And we do a lot of prison stories here on this show, too. The power of forgiveness, the power of love. Mike and Deborah Bailey's story, Ashlyn's story, and of course, the son's story, and that dealer's story, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. All right, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another, wherever they work, 
probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they worked with, somebody in competition with them. And they never get to do it. But they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna be a vet like your dad? And, you know, being the 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only gonna take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror, and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. Anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr? <laughs> wow. Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good, I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow and you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down the line. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Maddox gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Maddox walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that hold other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. 
And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move. Another nice move. Over to Blake. Blake beats it to Gretzky. Gretzky scores! What a shot by Wayne Gretzky! If there wasn't a Marty McSoley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSoley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg, and he speared Gretz, and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end, and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down, and I really hit him hard, almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes out. Now, I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings at 3 o'clock. You've got to go fight the toughest kid in the school on the playground, and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping. The night before a game, and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight, and then you lose two, and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young, frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers, and you blink, and there you are. You're 10, 12 years into the league. You've had your shoulder fixed two or three times. You've broken your hand a couple of times. There's a 20-year-old kid and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you. He wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. They are having words at the edge of the circle, and they drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to, that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash. The stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use... You know, his whole team as an example and to say that one guy created this for every single one of you so now you're all on my radar are they going to and yes they are if i can't get you i'm going to go to your best player and say i'm going to break your leg because of him and then they go really really and when we come back more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream this is our american stories
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here. And for anybody who loves the sport, well, you're loving this. And for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport, which I did, I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York. But I always wondered, why all the fights and who are these guys? Well, let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler. Here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers. Some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers. Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policeman for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analysing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, have played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skilled players perhaps who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without... Guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers, he wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky. I mean, he had Semenko, and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Semenko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What, what do you think Ray Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you, and if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career. Because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. 
So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky, nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean, people would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. The Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them and, and their owner had said, this isn't gonna happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up. Because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could do it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point, my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just going to beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That's sort of dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger-Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was like that, that, that uber violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and, you know, I almost had the palm olive hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just... Tried to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up, and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting, and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. 
As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives, the story of hockey in America, here on Our American Stories, continues after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same within hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sports. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. 
I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than, you know, to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything. Like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. It's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on, uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fight's also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him, motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaFord spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL. But after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs smashing out teeth you think he's merciless that that he should be exterminated he's a cockroach in the game and then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life in pursuing the question of the enforcer you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human what does the enforcer call on profound loyalty loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure his own body his own bones his own teeth his own brain 
on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves, the enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the enforcer defends, we would love the enforcer because the enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ enforcer and, as you will hear, all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in, to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been an, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. 
Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I'd loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself, and uh, a little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be, more rules, more enforcement, but we wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcer stories. <laughs> 